This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio and the audiobook version of Bloomsbury Girls by Natalie Jenner. Bloomsbury Girls is a compelling story of post-war London, a century-old bookstore, and three women determined to find their way in a fast-changing world. Grace must work to support her family following her husband's breakdown in the aftermath of the war, but she is torn between duty to her family and dreams of her own. Brilliant and stylish Vivian has a long list of grievances, the biggest of which is Alec McDonough, the head of fiction, and ambitious Evie was denied an academic position in favor of her less accomplished male rival, and the bookstore is where she plots revenge. Vivian, Grace, and Evie and their complex web of relationships, goals, and dreams are planning a future that is richer and more rewarding than anything society will allow. Award-winning actor Juliette Stevenson narrates this heartwarming audiobook from the internationally best-selling author of the Jane Austen Society. Get Bloomsbury Girls on Audible, Libro FM, or wherever you get audiobooks today. On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we are joined by Lauren McBrayer. Lauren is a graduate of Yale with a law degree from UC Berkeley, a working mom of three. She's the head of business affairs for an entertainment company in Los Angeles. Like a House on Fire is her adult debut novel. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So we have lots of questions, but why don't you just first set the stage by telling us a little bit about Like a House on Fire? Sure. So Like a House on Fire is the story of Merit, a woman who, when we meet her, is in her late 30s. She's the mother of two. She's married to her college sweetheart, Corey. They live in San Francisco. And Merit has taken a few years off from her career in architecture to attempt to be a painter, which was her big creative dream. And when the novel starts, she's getting ready for an interview because she's decided to go back to work, in part because her creative pursuit failed, but also because their mounting credit card debt means that she has to bring in some So that's the backstory. We meet her at the beginning of this interview that will ultimately change her life. She's interviewing with this woman named Jane, who's a Danish architect at a firm called Jager and Brandt. And she's 20 years older than Merritt. And she's an icon in an architecture. And Merritt gets the job working for Jane. And she thinks that perhaps this new job will kind of right everything that's wrong in her life, which I'm sure we'll get into in this conversation. And she's not wrong, but the answer is not the job. It's the woman that she comes to work for. That was a great elevator that pitch. Was, that was good. <laughs> and did we I get are it right, you guys. You, okay? <laughs> you absolutely did. And we are going to get into a lot of that. But I want to start with how this book came to be. Uh, you wrote a really incredible article recently mm-hmm. for Lit Hub entitled The Story That Saved Me on Writing My Way Out of a Life That No Longer Felt Like Mine. And you said in that, it astounds me now that I couldn't see it. I couldn't see 
that I was writing myself out of a life that had long before stopped feeling like my own. But I also understood that I wasn't writing my way into a new relationship. I was writing my way into the most authentic version of myself. The oh article God. was fantastic. Can you just exhale there? Oh, yeah. Oh I mean, it's so fantastic. Good. Oh, I could have quoted the whole thing, <laughs> but I would love for you to share for our listeners a little bit about the story you describe in that Lit Hub article about how this novel came to be and, and what your metaphorical death and Danny Shapiro and Sally Rooney novels have to do with this. Because I'll have I love in that common. Too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. So where to begin? So in 2019, I turned 39 and I went to Mexico with my then husband to celebrate my birthday. And I was just very out of sorts. At the time, I probably would have said, like, I'm still out of sorts because Trump is president. Like, I'm still out of sorts because I have three kids and they're young and it's hard. I'm out of sorts because, like, I don't love my career and I haven't thought of a third book to write. I can get into the numbers of my novels later. And I was just unhappy. And I, I was sitting there on this beach weekend and I had this premonition that I was going to die. I was convinced that my life was going to end in 2019. It sounds crazy to say it now, but in back then I, I thought it was very real. So when I got back to LA, I went out to dinner with the friend of mine who was as much of a hypochondriac as I am. And so I figured like, she's a safe space. She's going to think that it's legit. And I told her and she immediately said, it's a metaphorical death. Yep. You're going to die. It's a metaphorical death. And I was like, no, like, actually, I think I have cancer and just don't know it yet. And she's like, no, no, I'm sure it's metaphorical. Well, a few weeks after that, I went back to Mexico with a group of girls I didn't know very well for one of them's 40th. It was my friend and all of her friends. And I was having the same feeling and I was lounging by the pool and I fell asleep while reading conversations with friends. And I woke up with the idea for like a house on fire so clearly in my mind. I saw the ages of the women. I saw, you know, that they worked together. I could hear them bantering. And, you know, at the time, I, you know, it dawned on me that potentially it was a lesbian story because of the Sally Rooney book. Like why the Sally Rooney book stuck with me so much is another great question I could have asked. So I started writing this book. I remember I told a friend a few weeks later, and this is not in the Lit Hub piece. I said, I'm so creatively jazzed by this new book I'm working on. There is nothing of me in this main character and it's a thrill. Now, I mean, I wish listeners could see my face. It's like, um, okay. Um, I just did yes. not see it. Yeah, exactly. I, I thought I was writing someone very different from me because I thought I was very straight. So anyway, like I ended up writing this book. It poured out of me. And by the time I finished writing it about a year later, I had told my husband I wanted a divorce and had also told him that I my next life partner would be a woman. And when I started the book, I truly, it is not an exaggeration to say the thought had never crossed my mind. Death was at the forefront, closer than those those changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so interesting about Merit. So I I do want to talk about her because in the article, you also said Merit isn't me, but I do see myself in her and I believe I was supposed to. So I'm curious, I was thinking that there must be particular challenges to writing a character that in many ways feels so personal to you, but it sounds like you're saying you, when you were writing it, maybe you didn't see that it was so personal to you. So when did you sort of figure that out then while writing her, you just thought you were writing a fictional character? Yeah. 
yeah, I thought I was writing a fictional character and I don't want to use the word generic because as a writer, you're never trying to write someone generic, but I thought I was writing the universal every woman to the extent like the working woman, the the mother of young kids in a perfectly fine marriage who's doing all of the emotional labor. She was sort of archetypal in my mind when I started and I wanted to give her specificity and, and you know, I gave her this painting career, not realizing that it exactly mirrored my writing career. I gave her this profession that requires an advanced degree from Berkeley, not realizing that I have a profession that requires an advanced degree from Berkeley. Anyway, so in terms of when it dawned on me that she was me or I was her is probably in this loops back to Danny Shapiro. I went to a writing workshop with Danny Shapiro the fall of that year. So I was probably like four or five months in. And while I was there and was talking to the other women about this story, I knew, I knew what it was awakening in me and they knew also, I mean, they did, they were gracious enough not to say it at the time and just focus on the work, but we've all stayed close and they now say like, we knew, we knew it was a personal journey for you. (laughs) So probably around then I started realizing that there was a lot of me in here. And in terms of who she is, who Merit is for me, I used to say when people would ask, I'd say it was wish fulfillment. You know, she was sent to get to do the things I wanted to do, but I don't wish that I had made marriage choices because when we can talk about those, because they're complicated choices. I think she was for me, what I knew I had inside. I knew I had the potential potential and the capacity to do everything she did to lie to her husband, cheat on her husband. You know, we, there's a lot of moral ambiguity to check out on her kids, to let go of all of these roles that she has worked so hard to perform. And I knew I had that capacity. So she was, I wouldn't want to say like my dark side, but a little bit sort of like my real side. When I would stop pretending, what was I really capable of? And it was the stuff that she did. Wow, that is really fascinating. Yes. And it's more of like going through the dark side to come out to something more authentic, more integrated. I know we're going to talk about that too. So yeah. Yeah. And let me just ask about Jane then while we stay with our complicated women here. Like you said, she's a brilliant, beautiful Danish architect. She gives Merit this chance at a job witty, dazzling, really unapologetically herself. So with Jane, do you think you were writing the person that you hoped you could be or maybe the type of life partner you were looking for? I wanted to hear more about your development of her character then. Yeah, I think it's all of that. I think on a very basic level, I probably am attracted to older, beautiful blonde women. So there's probably a little bit of just raw desire in what I wrote. But I think in discovering my own queer and that side of myself, I realized and also have spoken to other women about this. There's this kind of dichotomy between wanting to be another woman and then wanting to sleep with another woman. And that for particularly women who aren't aware of their attraction or desire, that they might confuse those two. And I wanted to play with that. I wanted to play with a relationship where Merit finds a woman that she wants to be like and emulate and who has things that Merit doesn't have, or in this case, doesn't have things that Merit has, like young kids, like home obligations that Merit has. And so I wanted to play with that. So she wants to be Jane before she realizes she wants to be with Jane. I also wanted to look at and think about, honestly, female aging and this sort of idea that we hit a certain age and we are no longer desirable or they're no longer worthy of the male gaze. I wanted to be like, okay, well, what about the female gaze? Who's worthy of the female gaze? And I know for me and so many women, older ladies are beautiful. So I wanted to just give voice to that. 
instead of like the old patriarchal trope of the younger, hotter girl at work. Right. right. Oh, I love that. I, can we make that a trope now? Let's do that. I like <laughs> yeah, exactly. that. Let's, um, please I do. fell in love with Jane myself. I'm like, yes. she, she was so witty and funny and irreverent. I loved her. But I want to talk about parenthood. On this podcast, we've discussed many iterations and variations of losing yourself after parenthood or a more recent one when we watched Inventing Anna, the reporter on that show was doubling down and like kind of refusing to acknowledge she was even pregnant and that her life was was going to change in any way. And we were discussing those kind of different options as if it is. But you've added new language to that conversation. You said, for me, it wasn't so much a loss of self as a fracturing of self. As soon as I read that, I was like, oh my God, spot on. Can you talk a little bit more about what that was like for you? Yeah. You know, for me, particularly, I think because I've always had a career and I've always had a creative side of me, you know, I've been writing while also practicing law. And now I'm more on the business side of TV, but I have a full-time job and I write every day and I have three young kids and I had a husband and then friends, you know, and social commitments and all that stuff. Each of those roles required a different version of myself and the people with whom I interacted in those roles didn't see me as anything other than that. Kids didn't see me as a business affairs exec or a writer. They saw me as their mom. People at work had no idea I was writing. People who saw me on Instagram and knew I wrote books literally had no idea I had a day job and worked like 50 hour weeks. So in trying to perform all of these different roles, as so many women do, it was just like, you know, where am I? The real me, the heart of me. And I remember in 2018, probably led to the feeling that I was going to die. I went to a family fun night at my kid's school and I had the youngest in, in a stroller. He was a baby. And the older two were outside playing this very chaotic game with color spraying everywhere. It was like a total chaos. And I was walking around. It was so hot and like sweating and all the other moms are talking, but I don't know any of them. And I'm like pushing the stroller around. And I noticed abruptly that I had no internal monologue, that nothing was happening inside of my head. Oh, wow. And I was like, where have I gone? Right. Like, oh. where's Lauren? Where did she go? Yes. She left the building. Oh, um, wow. And that was the beginning of me trying to put these pieces together, which I think ultimately led to this book arriving like a thunderstorm in my brain. Yeah. Oh, wow. But this reminds me of the birthday party yes, scene, which exactly. is where, First of all, and was, the yeah. bubbles and the colors. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And like, so first of all, we love that scene and we both relate to different aspects of it. I am completely guilty as charged of having like a themed birthday party with the menu and how dare my husband bring something that doesn't go with the menu. I mean, I was very much relating to all of that, but also the part where afterwards she sort of looks at herself and is like, who, like, who am I? Like, who have I become? And I love the conversation she has with Jane after. And Jane tells her, it's not us, it's them. The lemmings who decided that women are supposed to be one thing or another instead of everything at the same time. And she makes it clear, Jane, that the lemmings are not just men, that it's women too. In fact, women may be the worst, which can also concur with. But we love that line because Jane is basically speaking our love language here. This podcast is basically dedicated to debunking the myth that women are just one thing and that our tagline is we're complicated. And so I don't think there's anything more complicated than what you're describing in the book, which is a woman trying to stop deceiving herself and trust who she really is. So I did want to hear more about how you've pushed back on these lemmings as Jane described them, because it's not easy. This is kind of what's being 
pushed on us, as you're noting, by both men and women. Yeah. And I think so many women reinforce these narratives unwittingly, not meaning to, because it's sort of when you begin to pull on the thread, the whole ball of yarn unravels. And again, like I'm sure there are women out there who are stay-at-home moms and really happy all the time. Like I can't speak to anyone else's experience, save for my own. But I've heard in friends sort of this insistence that, yeah, this is exactly what I want. I'm doing exactly what I want. I'm spending my time exactly as I want to spend my time, you guys. And it's like, we we don't (laughs) want to acknowledge this discontent because if you trace it to your kids, well, is it maybe really about your husband who isn't pulling his weight at home? And then maybe is it really about the fight you've been consistently having with him that's about the dynamic in your marriage? And it goes back to maybe you shouldn't have married him. I mean, the whole thing, you've got to hold it all together. Yeah. It feels like a game of Jenga. You take out the birthday parties and the whole thing goes down. Goes away. Well, and then you, if you take out the birthday parties and the other parents judge you for not being in the throes. Yeah. Then you're just the that brought up. Yeah. Yes. That was me. I refused to do the birthday parties purely because I didn't want to. I didn't want to have any part of that. And I really, my son is older. I didn't get as much pushback with him. But when I had my daughter, people would really thought I was the devil for not giving her these like princess fairy tale birthday parties. I'm like, she's two. Well, Anne Merritt has that line in the novel where Merritt says the people at this party were adults and most of them had graduate degrees. Like, yes. Why did they fall into this trap of spending money and standing around even though they don't want to? But we all do it. Yeah. So a way to push back on people who think that you can only be one thing is to write a lesbian novel while married with three kids and come out as gay. That's an excellent way. That's a big shove. Excellent. people for a loop, you guys. I highly recommend. Yeah, I think... Well, a few things. I think this sort of answers the questions in a a roundabout way. For me, the reason that I subconsciously, you know, I've unpacked it since then, placed this novel in the beginning in the workplace is because that was the place that I ultimately was allowed to be integrated because I was surrounded by women of different walks of life. We weren't all the same age. We didn't have the same relationships. Most of them didn't have kids. So I wasn't required to play any of these particular roles. But yet everyone knew I was a mom, knew I was married, knew I had these interests outside of work. So at the office working with women, I found that I could be multidimensional. And so I think to push back, it's sort of to be in relationship with other multidimensional women, just to be like, hey, you're doing a lot. Let's be friends. Let's be comrades instead of antagonistic or like the surface sort of thing where we're all just smiling and being like, yeah, I'm holding it all together amazingly, aren't you? Yeah. Um, To get real with people, I think helps you. Yeah. So the three of us are all lawyers, as I said. So I say this with humility, maybe complacency, but lawyers are trained to be lemmings, right? Everything is regimented. Go to law school for three years, pass the bar exam, be a first year, be a second year, be a third year. I mean, it really is lockstep and there's not much room for differentiation. For someone like me, that was appealing in the beginning until it wasn't. And then it was stifling and I felt trapped. But creative endeavors, on the other hand, are so varied. I mean, if you look at any two authors, their paths aren't the same to get where they wanted to be, to get where 
they were going. And so, I mean, that's a little scary in and of itself. So we've talked to a lot of authors who happen to also be lawyers with a whole spectrum of complicated feelings on that. I think you've done a pretty good job of integrating these parts of yourself as opposed to the ones who are like, I had to leave it behind completely. I couldn't reconcile the two or I didn't want to reconcile the two. Do you feel like those two parts of yourself are integrated? It's like the biggest compliment I've ever gotten was to hear that I've integrated these sides of myself because it has felt like the question of my 30s. Yeah, exactly. Finally, finally, I've made it, you guys. No, in the beginning, when I first graduated from law school, I got a traditional law firm job and was literally, I mean, I thought, I had woken up in someone's nightmare. I looked out at this, the golf course in Century City in Los Angeles and was like twice my age, who was calling me Miss Miller. By the way, my name became Miss Miller. That was my married name a week before I started at this law firm job. So oh I moved boy. to LA, got married, got a new name, had an assistant who was like 65. I'm yeah. 25. Right. I'm like, what uh, am I doing? I was in litigation. So it was like brief writing and mm-hmm. just a lot. Mm-hmm. So that I started writing almost immediately. And because I worked in LA and in entertainment, I was like, TV writing will be the easiest. I mean, clearly I was 25. (laughs) (laughs) So I wrote this script about a woman who is about to get married to this great guy, but she's having reservations because she doesn't think he's the guy for her. And so she wakes up on her wedding day to find out that our life or our world has collided with a parallel universe that's a year behind us in time, sort of a sliding doors with a sci-fi. And suddenly she's not engaged to the guy. Did I, I like at 25, this. think maybe that my subconscious was writing a story <laughs> about a girl? Um, you know, my subconscious is like, hey, what's up? Anyway, so that script ultimately became my first novel, which is a young adult novel that I published under my married name. So anyway, I, for the first 10 years of my career, probably, it was a big push-pull. It was, I didn't want to work in a law firm environment. I wanted to write, but I couldn't afford to live in LA without working in a law firm environment. So it wasn't until I went in-house at a production Mm. company and started working for women which at law firms, it's very hard to have female mentors Mm -hmm. because women leave the legal profession in droves Mm -hmm. that I finally felt like, oh, I can do this. Mm Because these women are allowing me to not secretly like scurry off and work on my writing. I can be like, hey, I'm also a writer and I can do a good job here too. Like I don't have to Right. So finally, yes, it's very integrated, but it took a while. I love that. I'm like, now, where did I go wrong exactly? <laughs> Do you think entertainment law helps being in a realm of law that takes art and entertainment seriously? Because yeah. I've been real estate finance and they don't take... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Your hedge fund clients yeah. didn't encourage you to do your writing on the side? No, no, they they could barely stand that I did yoga. They were like, what? Why are you doing that? And how come you still curse so much? <laughs> but do you think that helps? I mean, it doesn't cure anything, but it maybe helps a little bit. Just make me oh, feel better, Lauren, please. Yeah, no, it definitely does. It, it, it <laughs> helps uh, a lot because, yeah, you're dealing with art and media. Also, part of my job is I buy books for my company. So I'm, you know, negotiating option agreements. So even tangentially interacting with writing and authors and helping to get their books made into movies and TV shows is fun. And and the thing about entertainment is that it's a very unique business. Like it has its own rules. And so for me, the challenge of just really understanding a business is, has been fun. 
And it keeps my brain, you know, that would otherwise like ruminate and spin out, uh, <laughs> occupied. What are you so, talking about? What do you uh, mean, you guys? No, it's yeah. fine. <laughs> my husband is an entertainment lawyer and I know it's not as simple as like, he doesn't have a book in him. He's not, you know, writing a novel. So it's not like it feeds into that, but I do think maybe there's a little bit more of a culture of just appreciating what you're doing behind the, the scenes. So in this book, we are witnessing the seeds of merit dismantling a false identity, as you wrote. She has spent 39 years of her life trying to satisfy everyone else's idea of who she's supposed to be. I have definitely been there. My was a little bit earlier. I did it during my Saturn's return at 29, <laughs> kind of dismantling my whole life. And I began that process and trying to salvage the parts that were useful, get rid of the ones I didn't want, and then also take some scraps and build a bridge between them, which isn't easy. But you said something that really resonated with me. You said, I'm learning in my own life that dismantling a false identity is messy, sometimes painful, but ultimately exhilarating process that requires humility, a sense of humor, and lots of grace. You also said that if you could give any advice to Merit, it would be to trust herself. Do you think those are some of the ingredients of trust for yourself? Having some humility, humor, grace... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I'm just very jealous of you that you started this at 29. You know, this is what I say. Why she got to be so ahead of it? You know, she's way ahead of the curve. It was astrology. It's you. Everyone really not fair. Yeah, Yeah. I didn't even learn which one is at 40. Is it Jupiter or Uranus? Which was I in? Because there's one that's like midlife. The Jupiter return. It's Jupiter. It's Jupiter. Yes. And then Jane, unwittingly, when I wrote it, Jane is at a, I think the Uranus return, which happens mm. like around 60, 60, I think late 50s. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. Mm-hmm. There's also a second Saturn's return around that time too. I think it's like 57. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so, um, because trusting yourself sounds great, right? But it's not easy to do. And I don't know for maybe this doesn't apply for most people, but I was also terrified of making a mistake of leaving behind the thing I was supposed to be picking up and picking up something I wasn't supposed to be pursuing. So there's a lot of that paralysis and second guessing, but trusting yourself, I think the way you described it was perfect. Well, and I think it, yeah, you touch on a few things. The first is the only, well, not the only, but the the piece of advice I got from a, a male partner at a law firm that I think of maybe daily. And he said to me, so simple, but he said, don't be afraid of making a mistake. Oh yeah. And for a lawyer to say that it's, you know, the other partners were like, don't make any mistakes. I don't care if you're human, no mistakes are permitted. You know, he was like, ah, don't be worried about making a mistake. Just hit send on the emails hit send on the document. You'll learn. I'm like, Uh, great. Yeah. So that I think is something that I cultivated. I respected this man. I've listened to that. And so I I think about that sometimes, which has enabled me to make like a shit ton of mistakes. So lots of mistakes. But I think for me, what ultimately happened was I, when I was going through this huge transition, I was finishing this book. I was realizing that, you know, my life, I was going to make some radical changes. I went back and read all of the journals I kept from elementary school, middle school, high school, college, law school. And then the one I kept during my marriage, which was just one volume. So I, I wrote a lot less and middle school and high school were fun, but the college and law school ones, I, I met my husband in law school were really instructive and I'm reading them and I'm, I hear myself and I hear this young woman who is uncertain, but she knew who she was. I, you know, I knew who I didn't, I don't remember knowing who I was, but reading those pages, I'm like, oh, I know who I was. And I knew my reservations when I met this man that I ultimately married. I wrote them all 
down. So I'm, I'm reading and then I'm reading how we break up and how I'm confident it's the right move. And I just need to focus on my career and I have these big dreams and I'm reading it. And then I read last night he proposed and I said, yes, and I said, yes. Oh God. I'm like, that's strange. Then the entries fall off. Then I have this next volume that I started when I got married and I'm reading it. And I truly, you guys, I reading this voice, I'm like, who is this Who person? Is this person? Oh, it's not me. Wow. It doesn't sound like me. Wow. I'm suddenly writing about like my desires to be a good wife and to learn how to cook better and like prepare for motherhood. I, I mean, I'm reading. I'm like, did 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 you think you were being spied? Spied? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for me, there was this moment, and I remember it. Reading these journals where I just sort of sat there and I thought. I knew who I was at 24. Like I have no excuse at 40, 41. So I should have trust my intuition at 24. I'm going to trust it now. I'm just going to bank on it because it's like, this isn't something hard won or something that I've got to figure out. It's like, I was born knowing who I was and knowing what I wanted and I got off track. So I'm just trying to get back. I think. Oh, I love, jeez, I love the journals. Oh gosh. Mm -hmm. I found mine, but I only have middle school and high school. And like when we were doing um, an episode on poetry and Corinne's like, I don't know, I've never written poetry. I'm like, no, neither have I, whatever. I found these journals. I'm like, oh my God, I wrote poetry. She was sending me screenshot after screenshot after (laughs) screenshot. She's like, you're a liar, first of all. (laughs) And I was like, I am a liar. Like who, and same thing though. I was reading some like, who is this person? She was full of emotions and everything was about love. And I'm like, wow. Like, but seeing, I was like, hmm. Like maybe where did she, she go? Where did she go? And she, you're same kind of thing. Like she knew what she was talking about. Like she knew what was important to her. It is crazy. I wish I had them as extensively as you. Yeah. I only have middle school and high school, but it is very illuminating. Well, and I think talking about complicated women, I was very aware in my early 20s in law school that I was complicated. And it was not a good feeling because that felt like it was going to be an impediment to me having a happily ever after. It was like, oh, if I'm complicated, then I'm like a little less lovable. And maybe I'm a little dissatisfied and maybe I'm going to be rebellious or bored, like all these things. So Mm. I think I made a conscientious choice to be less complicated. So I think, I I mean, ultimately the last act was like, and the internal monologue shuts off. And now she is just a shell of a person pushing a stroller at a kid event. Because this is life. This is life. (laughs) And I should be happy. I have like a perfectly great husband and three healthy kids. And even as I talk about it, I hear the privilege in it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. merits privilege is something that I am well aware of and put there on purpose because it's sort of the point because privilege becomes a cage. But I just, it wasn't me. I was living somebody else's life. And so that can be a perfectly spectacular existence. But if it's not yours, it just doesn't fit. And it just, it like rubs like a shoe that doesn't like an Mm -hmm. ill-fitting shoe Mm -hmm. until you have a blister. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, I have to ask about the epilogue. I understand that it was a late addition to the book. So without revealing any spoilers, I'd love to hear that story. Well, what's funny about the epilogue, you know, I'll tell how it was written, but is that I can't imagine if I hadn't written it at this point, not just because the book would be different, but sort of, if you're going to ask me like my thesis on love and lesbianism and life and divorce, my thesis is not complete without the epilogue. So I'm relieved that I wrote it. But what happened is I wrote the novel and I will be honest that I knew, well, when I created Merit and Jane, the question in my mind was, what if 
the love of your life is not your husband, but your best friend. That was sort of the premise. That to me didn't necessarily mean that Jane and Merritt have like a super hot love affair and do or don't end up together. It could have been completely an emotional affair. It could have been like one hot night and then they realize they're not gay and they go back to their husbands. You know, it could have been a lot of things. I let them just tell me what it was. They took me there. But I didn't know how it would end because I didn't know how it was supposed to end. And I mean that not that I was trying to be moralizing with the book, but I, I just, I with Merit was on this journey of like, well, what's she supposed to do now? I didn't have it that, oh, she's supposed to like blow up her whole life and leave her husband or she's supposed to stay with her husband and fix her marriage and like go to counseling. I didn't know. So I, I just kept like fingers to keys feeling, dear God, I hope by the end of it, there's this an ending. Comes. <laughs> <laughs> comes the conclusion. So I wrote what is the chapter before the epilogue. And it felt really like a good culmination to me when I wrote it. I was like, it's a beautiful, the last scene is one of my favorite scenes in the book. It feels emotional to me. I felt caught up in it, which is really rare for me as a writer to feel caught up in the, my own scene. But so I loved it. There's some beautiful like baptism imagery. There's a bath. There's like some mothering imagery with like a swaddle that all came out organically and was just sort of little beautiful touches. I was really happy with it. And I felt like I wrote a perfectly fine ending that was the best I could do, sort of. Sent it to my agent. She had a few edits. We were going to go out with a book after Labor Day in 2020. And she said, I'm ready to send on emails on Tuesday, you know, take the weekend, make sure you feel good about everything. And then I think she said to me, and just make sure you're just, you totally, you feel good about the ending. And I didn't feel good about the ending. That weekend, it just was bugging me. And I sat down at this little desk in my old house because my then husband and I were working from home because it was COVID and the kids were all home. So I was like squirreled away in this little cheap desk in my bedroom. And I opened up my computer and I just started typing. And I didn't lift my fingers off the keys. I didn't rework it. I tend to like pour over each sentence. I edit as I go. I didn't. I just wrote it. I read it. I was like, hmm. Kind of like that. Sent it to my agent and she she actually, her assistant wrote me back and was like, I just read this epilogue and it's like, you must include it. I don't know what Kristen's going to say, but I just wanted to email <laughs> you first. I was like, oh okay. So we included it. And what's so beautiful to me is that in all of the edits with Putnam and my amazing, incredible editor, not a word of that epilogue has uh, changed. Mm. Not a sentence, not a comma. It just untouched. Nailed so it. Yes. Came out. And, and oh. you followed your intuition there, right? That you just knew and it came from that place of knowing. Yeah. And no spoilers, but for people who read it and feel frustrated by the time gap between the end and the epilogue. First, I'll say, keep in mind, I wrote it a day before I sold the book. So give me some... <laughs> <laughs> the thing is already done. But also, I think when people ask me that, I think that the things that happen between the last chapter and the epilogue of the novel aren't about Merit and Jane. Mm-hmm. And I wanted the book to really be about Merit and Jane. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's about Merit and it's about her marriage, but like Corey is not a leading character in this story. And I think in this space between the last chapter and the epilogue, he becomes more of a leading character in that story. Yeah, and so I just, true. it was okay for that to happen off the page for me. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I thought so very much. I couldn't even imagine. I didn't want to know all that stuff. I wanted good. to get to the good part. 
So I want to talk about the title too, like A House on Fire. What does that mean to you? And how did you land on it? At what part in the process? The very end, right? Maybe even after we, no, before we took it out to publishers, I had called the book Birds of a Feather, which Jane calls Merritt Little Bird and and they're, you know, of the same flock. My lovely agent was like, cute title, but no. She's like, it's just, it doesn't capture your mind. Like she was like, cute, but no, we need something sexier, something more fun. So she tasked me with coming up with something. And I knew I wanted it to be a metaphor because Merit loves metaphor. I love metaphor. And it just felt like I wanted a fun metaphorical title. So I actually Googled thick as thieves synonyms because I like the idea of Merit and Jane being thick as thieves, you know, like close instantly. And like a house on fire comes up as a synonym of thick as thieves. And I knew instantly I was like, yeah. It it's works perfect. on every level. It's it how they does. live together. It's architecture. It's yes. what happens to her life. And the fire. So, As the opposed fire. to the birds of a feather. I it, I get it. You're right. It is. It's cute. But this right. is, this captures More friendship the story. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Google. So I Google. Google. Thick, yeah. as, thick, thick as thieves synonym right. hit. And then it, it came up. So oh, yeah, I love that's it. Great. And the cover, well, yeah. which I see behind uh, Corinne and looking at you guys, the funny story of the cover or the great story of the cover is um, the art department at Putnam. I found out after they sent me this, they were supposed to send me you know, like three cover designs. And they said, we can send you others, but we all think this one's the best. Can we just send you this one? So I saw it and I think it's exquisite. I was like, it's beautiful. And my editor said, the woman in the art department who created it is very relieved because it's actually real paint. It's not a digital image. And she did it on her living room carpet and stained the carpet. Oh my God. <laughs> so she's relieved it's being used because it was a real piece of art, which oh, I love. Wow. It it's is beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Very strong title and cover. Yeah. Yes. And if you hadn't chose it and ruined her carpet, then, you know, that would be not a <laughs> I good I owe story. her a cleaning bill or something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. Well, we've already mentioned a little bit of perhaps previewed our interest in astrology because we mentioned Saturn's return and we are all lawyers. And so we like to tell everyone that we're a little type A. I don't know if, you know, Lauren, I'm not going to judge you, but you were a little early for the interview today. So maybe we'll put you in that category. But one of the ways we kind of escape our control freakness is through astrology. And so we always ask our authors, what's your sign and do you relate? But I stalked you a little and I think you're a Pisces. Is that right? Yes, I am a Pisces. Lots of feelings and emotions. So do you relate to being a Pisces? Oh yeah. I definitely yeah. relate to being a Pisces and to being a water sign. I think I don't I don't think I don't in my day job I don't present as a Pisces. I think i it's part of my maybe my performance over the years, but in my inner self, yes, I, I completely relate. Can I just say something about that? Because I have a lot of Pisces in my life. My daughter, my brother, my son, everyone's a Pisces. And Geminis get the rap about the twins because there's two and it's like two-faced as if they have two different parts of themselves. But Pisces is two fish. And I find they can present one way and you know that there's something else going on underneath it. And maybe not that they're hiding it, but just that they have one fish face and one, you know, a different one at appropriate times. So I find that tracking with the Pisces. 
no one has ever reminded me about the two fish. Like yeah, that's, that's such symbol. a great point. Yeah, I can picture it now, but I never thought. And yes, absolutely. Or just the sort of multi-dimension. Mm, I mean, for yes. me, I often think of the water, you know, the me above the water and the me below the water. Like oh. your body can be oh. both places at the same time. Yes. And, you know, you're kicking furiously yeah. under and going <laughs> way on the top. Yeah, exactly. And you gave us the birthdays are close. You gave us the birthday of merit. So I don't usually get to talk about uh, characters, astrological signs, but merit is May 6th. So that's a tour. Wait, Taurus, yeah, Taurus. right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And then Jane, I was trying to figure out Jane. I know she's it's like September. mid to late September. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I, I mean, then it, I don't know if it's Virgo or Libra, but she seems like if she was towards the end, then I was like, she seems like a Libra with that beautiful aesthetic sense or whatever, but did you purposely include their birthdays having anything to do with astrology or you just wanted their birthdays in there? I just, it's funny. I didn't, I mean, my subconscious might've wanted it for astrological reasons, oh, um, wondering. but no, the real, the real answer is probably my lawyerly type anus that keeping their age difference and how old they are in time. Did I need to specify that I was reminding you that she's 40 on May 6th? Probably yeah. not, but I wanted to be like tracking their exactly 19 and a half year age difference. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. But I thought it went well anyway. And I, I love that. Yes. And I'm just trying to think. I'm like Taurus and Libra. That's a good match. I think that could work. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So we want to close out with what you're loving right now. Any books you're reading, TV shows? I really hate to ask authors to talk about books because then they're like, what do I need to, my what is my do I need to sound to really literary? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yes. All right. of that. Um, or TV shows, podcasts, anything that you're really just loving right now. Yeah, as a straight A student, I'll answer all of them. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> love it. I'll start with um, podcast. I mean, obviously, pop fiction women, but um, no, I've love been you. listening to this. I, of course, it should be top <laughs> of the list. I am obsessed with this podcast, This Jungian Life. It's three Jungian analysts who talk about. Oh God, I love this you know, already. It's so good. Lisa Marciano, oh, who's one of the this. analysts who does the podcast, she has a book out on Jungian psychology and motherhood, which is so good. But the podcast, it's two women and a man, and they just talk about current day issues, psychological issues, and they, from a Jungian perspective, it's really good. I, like everyone else in America, oh, is wow. eager for conversations with friends on Hulu. So I'll just... Oh, boy. Help. Oh, oh, we're dying. We're dying. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I we just covered oh, the book. Gosh. I heard, we're yeah. so late yeah. to the game. Oh, you did. Oh, God. It messed, and up. messed up my whole messed life, up. You, you guys. You can't. Did it's I just... mention that? Did I mention that? <laughs> what <laughs> is it about Sally Rooney that I she mean... can do that? It's not nice. <laughs> well, I think for me, actually, with the, the Francis and Bobby, right? Is that yes. Nice? Yep. yes. Yeah, that's right. I attribute this to Sally Rooney's age being quite a bit younger than I am, but sort of the unabashed way that those women toggled between a sexual romantic relationship and then just the regular friendship. That's not a narrative of female friendship or female desire or sexuality that you see often. And just the way that it was like not the point of it, but yet completely the point of the book at the same time. Yes. It was so artfully done that I think that's to me what it was. It allowed my mind to go to what if two women could cross that line who didn't previously expect to. And after reading conversations with friends. I'm like, oh, totally could happen. So I'm excited about that. And then in terms of reading, I'm really excited for Rebecca Wolf's memoir, All of This, which comes out in June. Her husband died and it's the novel about how she actually wanted a divorce when he got a horrible diagnosis, but 
had to stay. And then afterwards in grief had to be like, actually, I didn't want to be married to him and he wasn't a great guy. And I don't want to pretend that he was just because he died. So anyway, her memoir, all of this. I'm and really she's four kids, right? I followed yes. her. Yeah, I followed she's her incredible. for a while and I, I've lost touch with that. I didn't know she had a book coming out. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, in oh, June. Yeah, good, yeah. So, and right now I'm reading Call Me By Your Name. I'm reading the novel that I've, I've seen the movie, obviously, but I've never read the book. And I really... It's so good, which is like, mm. obviously it is, right. but it really is all the hype. So I'm, I wanted to read something male for the first time in a long time. I've been like so exclusively female and it, it's great. Oh, I like that. And what about you? Are you working on a new book? I am working on a new book. I'm working on a different new book than I was probably like three months ago when people were asking me in early interviews, like, what are you working on next? I was like, oh, I scrapped the book I talked about then. <laughs> I'm writing a story about two women. It's a two-hander. It's about faith and queerness mm. and life like in the South. Oh, wow. Life in the South. So I grew up in Atlanta and my backstory is very enmeshed in the evangelical church and the challenges of that. So yeah, because uh, there's, there's that is an undercurrent with merit in like a house on fire, but you're going to focus even more. Yeah. And make it more personal to the, I wanted it in the, in like a house on fire to operate as sort of a backdrop, the same mm -hmm. way San Francisco does the same yeah. way architecture does to her experience, but not be obviously the point of the story. Yeah. So yeah, this book will allow me to tackle that, I think, a little more directly. Yeah, that's good. Ripe with tension and conflict there, but also some progress and some pushing back. And that's great. That sounds great. Yeah, I'm excited. Are you on deadline? Are you going to have to? Nope. I've decided when I was working on my YA novels, actually, that Anne Patchett, she's well known for this. She writes all of her books on spec. She doesn't do anything yeah. under contract. And I decided before anyone cared if I was writing mm -hmm. a book, I just always want to do that because yeah. it takes the time <laughs> pressure, but also the economic sort of the market concerns. And mm -hmm. you can focus on just the story that you want to tell. So you need to tell. Yeah. You need to tell. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. I keep thinking of more questions, so we can't let you go, but <laughs> it's about that time. Yes. Thank you so much. This was amazing. This was. Thank you so much for having me and for the support of the book. Of course. Yeah. And like A House on Fire is out now, so you can get your copy anywhere. And you wanted to let people know where they can find you. I mean, I already stalked you on Insta. I think that's where you, your post, I love your Insta, by the way. Thank you. I do. I love your posts. I've read a lot of them. You have a great page, but I assume that's where you are most active or? Yes. I, it's the only place I okay, am. Okay. Good. Not the okay. whole of Twitter. No, I, no. yes. When Trump got elected, I was like, yeah, I'm going to just stay out of, out of here. Yeah. Better for my mental health. Um, yeah. so it's Lauren McBrayer writes on Instagram and then laurenmcbrayer.com for web. And I've been trying to plug Putnam did this amazing book club kit that is available on my website and on my Insta. And it's great questions. It has the interview that I think you guys have probably yes. seen. So mm -hmm. people can get that for free. Do that. It yeah. is a really great interview. We got a lot of our quotes and our inspiration for questions from that because you really went deep and, and that's what we were excited about for this. Thank you. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. 
For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.